Good evening, brothers and sisters. We'll go ahead and start with a prayer um, as other people are coming in, settled in. Take your time. But uh, let us begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the gospel, according to John. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not heed them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus, we believe, we hope, we trust in you as the door of eternal life. Help us to enter through you into these mysteries of grace and justification, the mysteries of the virtues, the gifts, the fruits of the Holy Spirit bestow upon those whom you love. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, tonight's topic is, in, in a word, grace, is what we want to not just learn about, but really uh, learn to pray with and ask God for these graces. Uh, a lot of things we're going to learn tonight are things that you can take to prayer and kind of kickstarts that, you know, one third of our Lenten devotions, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, beginning the season of Lent, the ancient tradition of the church to engage in these three, three which Jesus taught us in that Sermon on the Mount, which I give you the Mount of the Sermon on the Mount. There it is. It's a beautiful sight lakeside view of the, you know, mount slowly slopes up to this little hill. It almost looks more like a plain, so we can forgive Luke for calling it the Sermon on the Plain. You know, he was, he emphasized, you know, the flatness, the broadness, the wide expanse as the gospel going out to all nations, with Matthew emphasizing the fact that it was, you know, raised up from the lake, the mountain, mountains being experience, a place of experience of God, a prayerful experience. And so beautiful church there, eight-sided for the eight Beatitudes uh, that lead off Jesus, Jesus's most precious sermon for us. And he gave us this, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, uh, increasing our, our brand new markers, can you believe that? Increasing our faith, our hope, and our love, but we'll get to that, just setting that up as our Lenten connection. So teaching how to pray with grace. What I've given is little snippets from the catechism. I like to um, put all of the, they're called the in briefs. They're like little statements at the end of every chapter, summarize all the material. So I've given us the in briefs to talk about together, but if you want to learn more, you can always go back. Catechism of the Catholic Church, CCC, uh, those paragraph numbers. Uh, to, I guess, study more deeply uh, some of these topics as you wish. But before we talk about grace, you have to talk about the law. Because in God's plan of salvation, he reveals his mind before he reveals his heart. And that makes sense when we think about how we come to know one another. 
before we get to know someone's heart, a lot of times uh, we start with the things that more of the mind. You know, who are you? Where you're from? You know, get their story, and then as that revelation happens, slowly but surely, we start to share our heart with one another. You could almost think of the law as the mind of God and grace as the heart. The grace, of course, we don't just want to know the mind what someone is thinking. We want to get to know them, want to connect with them. We want to embrace them, to love them. And so with others, so also with God. And so he gives us both, each in their time. So a little review of the law. I think we might have talked about Ten Commandments and morality in general already. Um, but here, kind of added on mention of grace. So starting with the law, we actually, I'm going to talk mostly about this chart, reference it, the different kinds of law. Oh, there is different kinds. Uh, the first three are, you could call them all divine law, laws from God. And then the last three are laws from man. Man is made in the image and likeness of God. If God makes laws, so man will make laws. And uh, the goal of this chart is to see how these laws are meant to work together, uh, to embrace one another, to lead into one another. And so I begin, uh, actually, the first paragraph, 1975, in brief. According to Scripture, the law is a fatherly instruction by God, which prescribes for man the ways that lead to the promised beatitude and proscribes the ways of evil. So the law becomes these guide rails. Uh, G.K. Chesterton describes the law in a beautiful way, this parable of these children that are on this little plateau, huge cliff sides in the sea all around, but there are walls all around the edges of the cliff sides. So what do the children do? They, they play in the middle of this plateau with reckless abandon. And someone comes along and says, we don't need these rules, these restrictions, these fences, tear down the walls. What will the children do? They'll sit there huddled in the middle of the plateau, you know, too afraid to approach the edge. So the laws are not just, they're not there to confine us, they're there to direct us. We're going in a direction. We have somewhere, God has somewhere in mind for us to go. So he gives us these guides. He treats us as a father in that sense. This is our definition of the law. The next one, law, has four parts. It's an ordinance of reason. For the common good, promulgated, that means made public, announced, proclaimed by one who is in charge of the community. Four-part definition, it kind of goes through uh, what is necessary for something to be considered a law. Uh, to help us kind of unpack that definition, what all those terms mean, I just want to turn to each of these laws and go down the line and see uh, the very first law. In our tradition, it's, it's called the eternal law of God. Uh, it, it's really just synonymous, really, in a way, with the mind of God. You know, his wisdom and his plan himself is this ordinance of reason. You know, we call Jesus the word of God, right? That word eternal with the Father from before, before all ages. That is really this eternal law of God, the eternal wisdom, divine wisdom which directs everything else. This law is really just imprinted on creation. The plan of God, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. That's really kind of God making a law in a way. You don't think of laws that way, but sort of the laws of nature follow this eternal law. Everything has its end. 
everything can cause certain things. It's promulgated in creation itself by God, who again has care for the community. He cares for creation, and that's why he gives laws to it. If God, let's say God doesn't care, God is all tolerance, right? It's chaos. <laughs> Nothing can become anything. Everything is just a swirl of, of nothingness. But because he gives each and everything its own proper nature, its own proper function, we can have, again, direction. Just think about the laws of nature. They give, they give the possibility for things to happen in our world. So also the eternal law. And then, stepping down one step, uh, there's something we call the natural law. So this is different than the laws of nature. Really what this is, is sort of our conscience. It's, it's God's law, that same eternal law that God has put into all things. But it's the one that you'll notice it's promulgated in our conscience. In that inner voice of our minds that can sort of direct us. This is good. This is evil. This is what you should do. This is what you should avoid. It's promulgated, you know, by our own nature, by us, you know, within our minds. But it's still the, the reason of God, the wisdom of God that's implanted in our heart as made as an image and likeness. And what does it do? It draws us into that eternal law to help us participate as man. We have a special vocation that we can actually guide creation to that end, which is God. We can guide creation there. Made in his image and likeness. We can actually think and choose. We can actually move things by our own will. So the natural law helps tell us, you know, what is good, what is evil. Um, it's that law written in our hearts. In the beginning, Adam and Eve, right? Uh, they commune with God. They participate in his wisdom. But then comes the fall, right? Then that natural law becomes darkens. Our consciences can be corrupted by our experience of sin and mankind's experience of, of original sin. Adam and Eve, they pass that experience on in a way through all generations. And so God, of course, is never outdone. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, God gives his divine law. So that's the law we usually maybe think about when we turn to the scriptures and God's law. You know, what he has put down in those scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's again the mind of God, which is imprinted into scripture and tradition. The living tradition of the church and the prophets and the patriarchs going all through through time, the plan of salvation. It's imparted by God who is redeemer, not just God the creator, God who redeems. And so already this divine law is, is going to be synonymous with grace, with this gift of God who did not let us simply fall by the wayside when we sinned, remain clouded in ignorance, but rescued us with his divine law. So those are the three, I guess, laws of God that he promulgates onto his creation and onto us, his redeemed. And from that, we, we sort of mirror God in the fact that we also uh, declare laws. And so there's three that I list. There's ecclesial laws, which are the laws of the church. There's positive law. That's sort of the law of the city, of the state. We organize ourselves together in groups. We can make laws, make these ordinances of reason. Looking at the inner wisdom of things, how are we going to live together as a society? What wisdom can we encode into our way of being? And so that positive law is encoded into the life of the citizens and the laws of the state. 
And then finally, uh, and this is good for Lent, right? We can also have personal laws that we sort of take on to ourselves. So um, you might have made a personal law not to eat sweets during Lent, in which case there's more cupcakes for me then, right? Oh, Rosie's, yeah, mad at me for, oh, I, I sort of don't want to eat sweets. But, you know, personal laws, again, they're the lowest law. So if they're serving, a, if, you know, they're getting in the way of a higher law, you know, like maybe the eternal law of God, which has thus dictated that cupcakes belong in Father Walmeyer's stomach, um, I need to follow the higher law in, you know, instead of the personal law. Okay, so each of the lower laws really, you kind of notice towards the end, they're all meant to communicate us into the higher laws. So personal laws, a lot of times we might make a personal law to help us follow the laws of the state even better, you know, follow the laws of our country, follow the laws of of the church, follow the divine law uh, all the mo more securely. So also the state, the church, and then God giving the divine law so that we can kind of participate again in that ultimate wisdom of God, uh, the, the ultimate, the wisdom, the plan of God, plan of sheer goodness, the eternal law, which, you know, in some ways really is himself. So, that's more on law than you probably wanted tonight, but it's going to be the framework by which we understand grace and what happens when God applies his grace to our hearts. So skipping the next chart for now, um, the old law. There's something we call the old law and the new law. The Old Testament and the New Testament, the old covenant and the new covenant. All those terms really are synonymous with one another. And both of those belong to the level of divine law. Again, the mind of God is put down in scripture and tradition, whether Old Testament or New Testament. So God brought this old law. And again, I want to reiterate that it's, it's sort of synonymous with God revealing his mind, revealing his plan, you know, making these promises and letting that be known uh, to the world, especially to his people, Israel. You know, God chose them among all to be a light to the nations, a light. Ones who know the mind of God, you know, what people has laws such as our laws? What people has a God so close to them as our God is to us? That's kind of a refrain from the Old Testament. So the old law is the first stage, as kind of it says in paragraph 1980, of revealed law. Its moral prescriptions are summed up in the Ten Commandments. The law of Moses contains many truths naturally accessible to reason, but God has revealed them because men did not read them in their hearts. So again, just explaining that the divine law helps us to get back to that natural law, to that participation in God's eternal law, where sin had sort of clouded our minds. And lastly, this old law prepares us for the gospel. Just as the mind, knowing something, prepares you to love it, the more you know the thing, the more you can enter into love with it. So the old law prepares us for the love of Christ. So the new law or the law of the gospel. And this is an important thing to get right. 1983 says the new law is the grace of the Holy Spirit received by faith in Christ operating through charity. A lot to unpack in that one sentence. The new law is not just this list of new rules that we have to follow. You know, God gave us some 10 commandments in the Old Testament, now Jesus gives us, you know, the Beatitudes, Gospel Councils, and you have to follow those now. You know, this new law is the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's an ordinance of reason. 
again, we talked about that being sort of like the wisdom, the mind of God. Jesus is the word of God. So this new law is Jesus Christ and his grace, which is promulgated by the Holy Spirit in the heart of the one who has faith to lead them into eternal life. Uh, so again, thinking of it almost more like a law of nature, where grace just acts in our heart like gravity. It draws us. It pulls us in. It changes space-time around it. It's the power of grace. And not just another set of written laws that we are to follow. It is the grace of the Holy Spirit. Talking about that more when we get to grace. But very important to, to get right. Because you know, otherwise, what's the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament? You know, a bunch of written laws that we have to follow. And if we don't follow them, we're punished. No, something incredibly new has been given into the heart of the matter. It's the grace of the Holy Spirit. It finds expression above all in the Lord's Sermon on the Mount and uses the sacraments to communicate grace to us. So finding expression above all in the Lord's Sermon on the Mount makes it seem like, oh, it is just an, another set of rules, right? But recognizing what the Sermon on the Mount actually is, I preached on this uh, on the one Sunday we had the Sermon on the Mount. Before Lent, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, I always remember the, the M that you have on your hand when you got five fingers. Matthew 5, that's where the Sermon on the Mount begins. It's not just this teaching of what to do and what not to do. It's actually a description of Jesus himself. When it goes through the Beatitudes, and we, we can turn to the chart now, the Beatitudes are there. You know, who is poor in spirit? Who has poured out himself, humbled himself more than Jesus himself? You know, who has mourned more for sin, the sins of the whole world? Jesus wept over his city, Jerusalem, that was missing the moment of his arrival. Uh, who is meek, you know, who went to the cross like a lamb led to the slaughter? He opened not his mouth. Uh, who hungered and thirst for righteousness more than Jesus, whose zeal for the Lord's house consumed him? Uh, who was merciful, if not Jesus, who said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Pure of hearts, clinging only to the Father's will, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Nothing else but you. Who made peace? Blood of his cross. Who was persecuted? Who took on the sins of the whole world? For the sake of righteousness. It's the biography of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you turning the other cheek. You know, that little description, that little line, you know, to turn the other cheek. Something that he very much does when the high priest servant slaps him what he responds uh, to carry, you know, to go, go press, be pressed into another mile, go with them two miles. That very much describes Simon, Cyrene at the crucifixion. So again, the Sermon on the Mount is more than just a list of things we have to do. It's, it's Jesus. It is his life that he wants to communicate to us. So this chart is, is maybe a way of uh, trying to draw out that kind of life, that kind of thinking. I lined up the Beatitudes with the commandments. Uh, there's eight Beatitudes, 10 commandments, but when you shove, you know, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, that kind of goes in with adultery. Shall not covet your neighbor's goods, that sort of goes into thou shalt not steal, comes eight. And then there's also eight parts of the Our Father. Eight, sort of seven petitions, asking God for something. One, just praising God for who he is. And then there's eight virtues that I list there. We'll go over the virtues at the end of tonight. 
But reading these all together as, as a life, a way of life, not just, again, rules that have to be followed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who cling only to God, who have you know, no other attachments but to the Lord. Again, I am the Lord your God. You shall not have other gods before me. And then that line from the Our Father, Our Father who art in heaven, you are my Father, and you are my everything. Everything I have comes from you. That's virtue of faith. That's clinging to the Lord, trusting in him. Um, some other ones uh, that I like. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the land and keep holy the Lord's day. The Sabbath day is very much a day of meekness. You know, it's, it's sort of a revolt against the power of the world. Meekness sort of is the opposite of power. Meekness on the Lord's day, which says it's more important what we work for and work in itself. We will not be slaves of work. We'll put ourselves into that connected family of believers that we belong to and remember the things that are really important. That's keeping the Sabbath. And that's asking God for his kingdom to come. I mean, again, celebrating the Lord's Day, again, is this almost revolt against the way of the, of the world. It's sort of, you know, world not being evil in itself, but a lot of times being corrupted when, again, nature that has been affected by sin is not imbued with grace. And building up this kingdom is the work of love. So again, just reading those commandments, those beatitudes, the Our Father and the virtues uh, all the way across is uh, can kind of be uh, a fun, fun little activity. The, the church fathers loved doing this kind of thing. Uh, these lists are sort of developed from the church fathers, from, from Augustine, uh, from Thomas Aquinas as well. So um, just to, just pause, look at the chart, maybe find one of the Beatitudes that, and connect it to one of the commandments, one of them that speaks to your heart or your experience of, of your faith journey up till now. So does anyone have um, any reflection I'd like to share, any insight from the Spirit or question yet up to, up to this point, uh, really reflecting on just what the law of Christ really means? You will have questions. <laughs> Take this home. Uh, pray with it. It's a good Lenten reflection, perhaps. Connecting all these parts of Jesus's life to one. Because uh, that's, again, what this new law is. It is Jesus. So 1984, that paragraph sort of at the bottom of that page. Law of the gospel fulfills and surpasses the old law and brings it to perfection. Its promises through the beatitudes of the kingdom of heaven, its commandments by reforming the hearts, root of human acts. Law, the new law is the law of love, law of grace, law of freedom. And when we get to the fruits of the Holy Spirit, those three words are going to take on sort of a whole new dimension. Law of grace, law of love, law of freedom. That's very much experiencing this law with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's where we're going to end tonight with the fruits. So with 
sort of our idea of the law. Oh, yes, go ahead. Sure. Yes. So the question, yeah, how, how, what were they thinking going from all these commandments? 613, I think total. 365 negative ones for every day of the year and 200 and something, whatever, whatever we remained with, positive ones for every part of the human body. That was the rabbinic understanding. But actually in the Old Testament, those commandments get reduced. Uh, they talk about uh, David. Some, somehow they talk about David having only 11, Isaiah having only six that are mentioned in, you know, David mentions 11 commandments, Isaiah six. And you get to like, uh, I can't remember one of the prophets, Hosea, there's only one commandment, you know, love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And so even before Jesus, we, we sort of have this, this funneling down, what are all these for? Again, just like all of these laws, there's, you know, millions of personal laws out there. There's a lot of positive law. There's, I guess, only one ecclesial law, and it kind of funnels everything up into the one law that everything else falls. So like a tree. So it makes sense that there would be all these commandments at the very beginning, you know, encompassing all these different parts of human life. Again, God reveals himself slowly to Israel, but that they start to funnel, especially as we get closer and closer to Jesus. And then again, it's super important. Jesus didn't give us eight commandments, right? The new law is not this written law of the Beatitudes. It's not, it's, it's Jesus himself. And you get this when you read about Jesus reinterpreting different laws, like the law of the Sabbath, when his disciples are chosen, kind of missed this, you know, uh, when the disciples are, are picking grain on the Sabbath and Jesus, and again, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus gives two examples of why this should be allowed in this particular instance. One is because David was allowed to eat of the holy bread, he and the men who were dedicated to him, who had taken those vows, because he is also a priest. He is a king. He's an anointed one. He's also a priest. And the priests get to eat that holy bread. And he also talks about the temple. The priests of the temple, they work on the Sabbath. Priests in the Catholic Church work on Sundays. Yes. Because they're dedicated to that work. And so he's implicitly saying, don't you see that there's something greater than David here? There's something greater than the temple here. My disciples are priests of the new covenant. They are serving in the new temple, which is my body. So all of the law is pointing to Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus. So when we talk about some of the laws we don't do anymore, some of the laws we do, it, it, it's not exactly that. It's just that all of the laws, any law that God has ever given is fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, for instance, the law of food. And that's one common one that we'd say, oh, we don't, you know, follow that Jewish law of, you know, not eating pork, not mixing milk and meat. So cheeseburgers are good. That we kind of keep, I don't know, Lent is kind of that. Have I ever told you my theory on why we can eat fish in Lent? You know, first pope is Peter, a fisherman. Talk about corruption in the church. Gosh, it's getting all his buddies, you know, <laughs> yeah, getting them a profit. But when you look at what those laws were directed to, right? Um, in, the, in the beginning, right? God gave all types of food, Adam to Eve to Noah. Sin entered the world and it starts to get constricted. Sin constricts us. God chooses his own people, a people for his own possession. 
And he makes laws that distinguish them from every other nation because they are to be holy. They are to be set apart. But then when the New Testament comes, this holy and set apart people are called to go out. They have received the fullness of God's wisdom. And God has given them an insight into his heart in Jesus. And now they explode out onto the world. And so Peter has that beautiful revelation of all of the animals of the earth coming down from heaven and this voice saying, take and eat. It's, it goes parallel with that call to go out to all nations. Different people eat different things. Okay, so out to all food is that call to go out to all people. So again, it's not that we don't follow those old laws, but again, if you're a holy people, you're my chosen people, you eat what my chosen people eat. Now God's chosen people are everyone, whole world, Catholic, universal. So that is the same law, but now opened up for the whole world, because that's the age we live in, the age of the church. Is that starting to make sense? I mean, it's a lot there, <laughs> more we can unpack. But the new, the new law of the gospel is Jesus, just Jesus himself. All these other laws are fulfilled in him. Oh, yes. I like to mention, yeah, God slowly revealing himself to man. And I tell my freshmen, I'm like, would you want someone to come up to you and be like, hi, my name is Father Walmeyer. I've, uh, you know, I got everything. This is, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. And uh, this is what I like about you. This is what I don't like about you. Um, it's little like, we don't, we don't like that, right? And again, we're made in God's image and likeness. God apparently, you know, doesn't like that. He, he, he doesn't just want, you know, this sort of factual knowledge, you know, can you, can you check all the true and false boxes about God? Uh, he wants this lifelong relationship, eternal lifelong. So slow and steady. The um, <clears throat> 1986, uh, besides its precepts, the new law includes the evangelical councils church's holiness is fostered in a special way by the manifold counsels which the Lord proposes to his disciples in the gospel. So, um, it, yeah, the in brief didn't actually list kind of the three, three classic evangelical counsels, but it's poverty, chastity, and obedience. And very much sort of going right along with prayer, fasting, almsgiving, faith, hope, and love, poverty, chastity, obedience uh, across the way, praying, fasting, almsgiving, you know, poverty, again, that being poor in spirits, you know, not necessarily a physical poverty, but detachments from the things of this earth, clinging, right, clinging in faith, trusting in God. Uh, chastity, you know, foregoing earthly goods, not just chastity and sensual pleasures in like the mar married life or anything like that, avoiding marriage. It, it's chastity in all sorts of things. That self-control of, you know, foregoing certain goods in pursuit of something greater, some higher good. And that's that virtue of hope, okay? Hoping for the greater good versus just letting our hope be satisfied by these lesser goods, trapped by them, but hoping for the greater good. And then obedience, uh, love, Almsgiving, uh, love, especially as to will the good of another. Obedience is that training ground of love, in a sense, where we lay aside our own will in order to obey the one, the will of the other. 
you know, an almsgiving is very hard sometimes when someone else has this desire, this will for you. Um, you know, in, in Rome, it was kind of, uh, there was, oh, you know, the gypsy population, the Romani. And it was kind of hard because you didn't know they were actually telling you the truth all the time. Oh, always be padre moneta, por favore. And you're like, I, I gave you stuff yesterday, and you're here again. But almsgiving, right, kind of sacrifices your own will. It says, you know what? It's up to the will of God. Here you go. Here's, yeah. Una moneta. Here's a coin. There you go. Oh, Maria. She was ours. Yes, we had her. It really, they really, the poor, God gives us the poor, like the poor are good. Yeah, God gives us the poor to help us to get to heaven. So it's, uh, it's so good. God is so good. Um, we're going to move now to the topic then of grace and justification. Uh, we'll then take a break, come back and kind of unpack uh, specific graces, specific virtues. And so uh, this topic uh, must be said uh, is very much where the Protestant Reformation, you know, enters church history. This topic of justification. What must we do to inherit eternal life? And the church's answer is, in a sense, twofold, to put it briefly. Now, what must we do? Well, nothing. <laughs> There's nothing you can do. On your own, you have nothing. So justification, uh, making something right. Uh, it is right and just. We think of those two words sort of interchangeably. Making something right. <clears throat> to be just in the sense of the old covenant is to follow the commandments, is to live in the commandments. So following doesn't just mean, uh, you know, obeying, 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 obeying. It, it's sort of walking in the way of God. It, it talks about this in the Psalms and the wisdom literature, sort of changing your whole life to conform to the commandments. Can that make us right in the eyes of God? Can that justify us? Can we be righteous doing that? So the simple answer of St. Paul is no, all men have sinned. <laughs> uh, you live long enough around the world long enough, you will stumble in one of those, one of those commandments. Does that ruin the whole project of God then? So that's sort of the question behind this. In one sense, no, you can do nothing. <laughs> uh, but we'll come around to what happens once God has introduced his justice, his making us right, and then what's our response to that. So reading at 2017, the grace of the Holy Spirit, which again we mentioned already, is the new law of the gospel. Grace of the Holy Spirit given by faith in Christ. Confers upon us the righteousness of God. Again, righteousness is this covenant fidelity. It just says in the Old Testament, fidelity to the old law, old covenant, the commandments. But this New Testament, it's fidelity to Christ. This total covenant fidelity, total communion, connection. Uniting us, again, uniting us by faith and baptism to the passion, resurrection of Christ, the Spirit makes us sharers in his life. So again, righteousness, justification, it's not this just legal term of you are innocence, 
of ever having sinned because we know we we've sinned we may sin in the future too we are weak human beings but it's this deeper meaning of we remain connected to christ we are part members of his body and if he has risen he he rises from the dead then we can have life as well if we're connected to him he's an unlimited source of life like conversion, justification has two aspects. Moved by grace, man turns toward God and away from sin, and so accepts forgiveness and righteousness from on high. And I think this is something that uh, can be missed. Again, just justification isn't just that we are, our sins are eliminated, are covered, right? Turning away from sin. God turns us away from sin, but God also turns us towards himself. So there's one sort of understanding of justification as, again, God simply covers over your sins. He overlooks them. He forgets them. Forgive and forget, right? Catholics don't believe in forgive and forget. Sin is an active principle in the world. Forgiveness has to be active. So grace and of justification actually changes us, and that's kind of the key here. It doesn't just move us away from sin. It turns us towards God. It conforms us to Jesus, who is the new law. It lets us share in God's very life, participate in his very life. That's where we start moving towards work. So again, on the one high end, what can we do to turn away from sin? Well, nothing. We're sort of locked in. All men have sinned and have fallen short of the grace of God. But on the other hand, being turned towards God, then we have this ability now to participate in that justice of God in his relationship, in this covenantal relationship with him, we can respond to grace. So again, 2020 kind of emphasizes the one hand. Justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ. It is granted us through baptism. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who justifies us, has for its goal the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. The most excellent work of God's mercy. So then on the one hand, it's all God. It's all him. Grace, it's all grace. His grace is first. Grace, the very word grace just really means gift. When you look at where the word comes from, um, it, it's also the Greek word that's used all throughout is charis, which if you listen to that enough, charis, 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 you might recognize that it's actually also the same word as Christ. Christ is the gifted one, the anointed one. Anointing, again, is that pouring out of a gift, uh, you know, the, symbolizing the oil of the old anointings, uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God. Jesus is the anointed one. He was the one with the fullness of the Spirit. So grace, charis, Christ, Christ, the anointed one, uh, is, the, is the full gift of God. But again, 2021 sort of leaps into that second part of justification. Grace is the help of God is the help God gives us to respond to our vocation of becoming his adopted sons. It introduces us into the intimacy of the Trinitarian life. So yeah, I think there's a great emphasis on this point. Again, little history, right? In the in the Protestant Reformation, they weren't wrong on emphasizing this initial point where it's all grace. It's all gift. But sometimes emphasizing one thing too much leads us to ignore the second part. Grace introduces us 
into the life of God. When I'm introduced to someone, you know, I start to get to know them, but that's not the end all of that relationship. So going into the next portions, grace and merits. We're going to talk about what happens during this intimate covenantal union once justification has made things right. So grace. The divine initiative in the work of grace precedes, prepares, and elicits the free response of man. Precedes, prepares, and elicits. Uh, again, those three words meant to emphasize it's all grace first. God is 100% on the, in the initiator of, of this relationship. Now, there's nothing we can do to access God on our own. And yet it elicits this free response. So one, one image I love, and I think I've shared this, is the image of an instrument, right? Uh, the motion of some, some musician playing an instrument elicits this response from the instrument itself, and this sound is produced. The instrument sitting there by itself will never make a sound. And yet, it contributes something to the sounds by receiving first the grace that is given to it. It contributes something. Now, we are not dumb instruments, but at the same time, we are kind of like maybe those performers in an orchestra where nothing we do can happen without first the instinct of our conductor of God, who is working, almost playing the orchestra as free instruments, instruments that have free will. So they could, I suppose, play at the wrong time, play off key. They can do all sorts of things to sin against the conductor. But our conductor is so wise, so loving, so gentle, that he even forms those things into the song and transforms the song, gives them another chance uh, to let their true song play, play forth. So again, grace is similar where it's all God's inspiration like his breath coming into that instrument. But then we receive that and we respond. So sanctifying grace, there's different. Grace is one. Grace is God. Again, God is gift. Gift is the Holy Spirit. Grace is one. But we're going to start distinguishing between just different aspects of grace. Uh, just like white light can be split into different colors. You can study it based on this spectrum. We can sort of Examine the life of grace, the different kinds of grace that God gives, but just understand they're all just shares in God's very life. So the first is sanctifying grace, grace which sanctifies, grace which makes us holy, which sets us apart. Uh, this is sort of grace, period. It's the life of God, the life of Christ living within us. So infused by the Holy Spirit, Heal the soul of his sin to sanctify it. So this is what gets us connected to God, gets us into the body of Christ, gets us righteous in that in the mind of this new covenant, which again is Jesus. Sanctifying grace makes us pleasing to God. Charisms then, or special graces of the Holy Spirit, they are intended for the common good of the church. So one thing, and I don't know which color is going to work. 
these three, they're sort of important, especially uh, to help us, I think, to, to not judge other people too readily. Sanctifying grace means that you are, again, adopted child of God. You are infused with his very life. You, again, dying, you would have that promise of eternal life. And so it's the first and foremost grace that all of us want, all of us need. Charisms are those graces, those gifts of the Holy Spirit that are meant to lead, especially other people, into this sanctifying grace. So, for example, you know, being a prophet is sort of a charism. There are prophets whose prophecy doesn't actually help them stay attached to sanctifying grace. Um, Think of Jonah. We read about Jonah today at Mass. Um, His being a prophet helped all of Nineveh convert, and yet he hardened his heart. So the reason I bring up this with charisms is one, you know, a lot of us think that unless I have charisms, unless I have some special gift from the Holy Spirit that's visible and active, then I'm not really blessed by God. And it's it's not the case. Sanctifying grace, life with God, is primary. You know, God will pour out charisms and then actual graces we'll talk about as well on those whom he sanctifies. But to not think that I, I'm not blessed, I'm not, I don't have grace unless I'm able, to, it's, it's able to be visible. Does that make sense? The prime, the prime form of grace is the sanctifying grace, which in a sense is invisible. In a sense, we don't even know sometimes. Are we in a state of grace? Sometimes we use that state of grace. I mean, do we have sanctifying grace? Or have we done something that has cut off that stream of grace? Mortal sin. I think we talked about that with the commandments. But this charism as well, a lot of people uh, can also kind of be disillusioned when they hear about maybe someone in the church who seemed really holy and seemed to have a charism for preaching and teaching and spreading the gospel. And then you come to find out that they actually might have been a terrible person underneath. Okay, Again, Prophet Jonah, right? He kind of was a jerk in his inner thoughts about how these Ninevites didn't deserve God's mercy. And again... God can give this charism even to someone who doesn't have sanctifying grace. There's some examples even from the Old Testament. The prophet Balaam is this prophet who doesn't belong to Israel. And in fact, he very much hates Israel, hates the project of God, leads Israel into sin. And yet true prophecies are given to him. True charisms are given to him. He's the one who actually prophesies about the star of Bethlehem. The star will rise before the coming of the new king. So again, God can give these charisms. Even He can even work through, I guess, is the point, uh, those who are doing evil, which should also make us, you know, at least a little take some of the pressure off that God can write straight with crooked lines. Uh, God can work through even our human weakness on nature. And then actual grace. Uh, and it's right there kind of in the word act. You know, these are, you know, little gifts each and every day uh, that we are to, you know, call to mind. Thank God for, praise him, and sort of let him work. Let him, again, kind of push us in our lives. Be his hands, uh, be his feet. Let our eyes be Christ's eyes, our mouths be Christ's mouth. So those little actions. Um, Again, a lot of the spiritual life is really kind of around these actual graces. 
uh, the little acts each and every day that again remind us just that God is with us. Uh, so we'll take uh, take about five minutes, get some water, get a treat if you haven't made a personal law against it. Uh, we'll come back talking about merits, which is really sort of our response to grace, what that looks like, and then we'll uh, sort of dive through a reflection on the virtues, which are some of those aspects of graces. Of course, it's all grace. Okay, see you in five minutes.